You're listening to Calvin's Institutes. Lesson 6. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Lesson 6, Calvin's uh, Doctrine of Providence. And you know the doctrine of providence in John Calvin, I've pretty much uh, through the years as I've taught this course, I've, I've noted how relevant this has been for me. So every time I come back to this particular topic, there's a little um, personal note in the margin of my institutes about what's going on in my life, almost like a little diary there, and the, the significance and importance of God's providence in our lives, which I was preaching about in chapel uh, yesterday. In fact, um, back in 1989, when I was first... Um, diagnosed with lymphoma, I had to miss a class. I was teaching Calvin's Institutes, and I had to miss a class uh, because of that. Uh, and uh, the topic was providence. So when I came back, uh, after having missed that class, I was able to, to pick up with this uh, wonderful treatment of God's uh, providence. Let's start uh, with a prayer from... John Calvin, as we do each each day, and uh, this prayer has uh, particular uh, relevance to the subject at hand. Let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, that since we are here exposed to so many evils which suddenly arise like violent tempest, O grant that with hearts raised up to heaven we may yet acquiesce in thy hidden providence. And be so tossed here and there, even though we are so tossed here and there, according to the judgment of our flesh, yet to remain fixed in this truth, that thou wouldst have us believe, that all things are governed by thee, and that nothing takes place except through thy will, so that in the greatest confusions we may always clearly see thy hand, and that thy counsel is altogether right and perfectly and singularly wise and just. And may we ever call upon thee and flee to this port, that we are tossed here and there, in order that thou mayest nevertheless always sustain us by thine hand, until we shall at length be received into that blessed rest which has been procured for us by the blood of thine only begotten Son. Amen. I've been reading a a book. uh, It's called Sea Room. Island Life in the Hebrides. It's an um, account of uh, a man uh, who spends a lot of his time on three very tiny islands, uh, just a few acres uh, each, uh, out in the Minch. That's the water that separates the Isle of Skye from the island of Harris and Lewis. And uh, interested in uh, things Scottish, so going through this book about these little islands, but I, I came upon this uh, this incident reported by the writer last night. This uh, took place in 1894 on the island of Lewis. Uh, Lewis is probably the most Presbyterian uh, part of Scotland. Uh, 
Stornoway, the little capital of Lewis, has about uh, 12 churches. Uh, Ten of the 12 are Presbyterian churches. Uh, There's a little storefront Catholic church and some other kind, oh, an Anglican church. Tiny little beautiful Anglican church, but all the rest are Presbyterian. So a lot of Presbyterians uh, on Lewis. And uh, here's the story. Is there much fishing in this lock now? A Lewis crofter or uh, farmer was asked by one of the investigating commissioners who came up uh, from London in 1894. There used to be when Herring came into it, he said, there's very little fishing except when there are herring. Uh, Do you know the reason why the herring are not coming now? Providence, the crofter said, the administration of the creator. (laughs) So the uh, London investigator got a little lesson in theology there. But I want to keep that uh, little story in mind because it illustrates uh, a number of things uh, that I want to talk about in relation uh, to Calvin's uh, doctrine of uh, providence. Uh, Calvin follows the doctrine of creation with the doctrine of providence. These two are extremely uh, important to him and important uh, to be linked. He says, we see the presence of divine power shining as much in the continuing state of the universe as in its inception. And you'll notice that this Presbyterian crofter got it just right when he said providence, uh, the administration of the creator. Providence is the, the work of the creator, the continuing uh, government of the creator, the one who created all things now preserves and governs all things. There's one book uh, on Calvin's theology that says at this point in his uh, systematics, in his institutes, he comes closer to the tone of ecstasy than he does anywhere else in the institutes. And that may well be. There are plenty of places where Calvin rises to uh, celebration or ecstasy, but he certainly uh, does that uh, in his treatment uh, here. For instance, this sentence in 116.1, God sustains, nourishes, and cares for everything he has made, even to the least sparrow. Now, that kind of uh, sings, doesn't it? You can see Calvin uh, rejoicing uh, as he uh, writes those words. Well, let's uh, look at Calvin's definition of uh, providence, and to do that, I'll go through a number of steps here. Calvin works uh, on a definition, and uh, I think we can organize it this way, beginning with this statement. It's more than it's more than foreknowledge; it's government. Providence is not simply. Uh, God uh, knowing uh, beforehand uh, what's going to happen. Calvin says, 116.4, God governs all events. Thus it pertains no less to his hands than to his eyes. That it's not just God's eyes. In fact, the word providence is really what it means. It means to see beforehand. But uh, it's more than that. 
might say providence is more than providence in Calvin's view. It's more than just seeing beforehand what's going to happen. That would be amazing enough. You know, if God could see all down through history and see everything that's going to happen all the way down to this very moment. But uh, Calvin says it's not merely seeing uh, what's going to happen, but it's governing what happens. So it pertains to his hands. That is, he is, he is controlling all things, as well as seeing what lies ahead. He doesn't just see what's going to happen. He determines uh, what's going to happen. Second uh, point in definition, more than permission, it's direction. Calvin deals here with the possibility of using the word permission. Is that acceptable? Can we say God permits some things and directs some things? Can we make that kind of, uh, of distinction? You um, remember how Calvin treats that. He, he notes that Augustine, and he loves Augustine and generally follows Augustine. He says, Augustine uh, frequently uses the term permission. Augustine will say God permitted Adam and Eve to sin or permitted the devil to do such and such. And actually, Calvin will too, occasionally. He'll use the expression uh, permission. But Calvin says that uh, Augustine's term is best understood from this sentence um, in Augustine's Enchiridion. For it would not be done if he did not permit it. Yet he does not unwillingly permit it, but willingly. And uh, that's, that's the understanding of permission that Calvin picks up on. Yes, you can use permission. You can say God permits things to happen in this world, but uh, he does not uh, permit things unwillingly. He permits things willingly. In other words, use permission in a strong sense, not in a, not in a weak sense. Calvin doesn't like what he calls mere permission or bare permission or indolent permission. He uses those uh, words to, uh, to qualify um, permission. And he says if that's, if that's what uh, we mean, then it's not, it's not true of God. You know, we can, we can use permission in that weak sense. Um, your your um, child wants to do something, and you don't want the child to do it. You don't think it's good. But children have a way of pestering you, <laughs> and they keep on at it until finally sometimes the parent will say, oh, go ahead and do it. You know, that's permission, but that's not... Um, Willing permission. That's giving in. That's mere permission or weak permission or indolent permission. So Calvin says, no, God doesn't really do that. God doesn't just throw up his hands and say, oh, go ahead and do it because he gets tired of uh, hearing about it. The term permission then can be used, but it's more than that. God's providence is, is more than that. Uh, the term uh, permission doesn't really absolve God from responsibility for what happens. You can't say, well, I'll use permission here so God isn't so involved in what happened. 
but uh, that weak use of the word weakens God's authority and it does not absolve God from responsibility. I think in Calvin's treatment, good and evil are not related ultimately to the will of God in exactly the same way as we'll see. But um, the word permission, the concept of, uh, of permission um, is not accurate or not um, helpful, Calvin says. You can use it, but use it in the right way. As Calvin uh, does in 114.17, where he says, Satan carries out only those things which have been divinely permitted to him. So there Calvin will use uh, permission, but in the strong sense, not in the weak sense. All right, uh, third point. It's more than general. It is particular. Uh, Here Calvin is dealing with um, the philosophers who teach a kind of universal providence. Calvin lived later. He would uh, include the deist in his critique here. Calvin is not a deist. The deist believed in a universal providence. That is, God in some general way is superintending, but he's not really involved in the in the small points of human history or the history of this world. The deists believe that God created the universe, put laws into effect, and then kind of turned his back on it, sometimes called the watchmaker view. Make the watch, wind it up, and <clears throat> ignore it. But uh, that's not uh, Calvin's view of providence. It's more than general it is particular. Uh, John T. McNeil, the editor of our edition of the Institutes, and a book that he wrote called The History and Character of Calvinism, which is still a very useful book for Calvinistic history, has this sentence. Calvin's world, from stars to insects, from archangels to infants, is, is the realm of God's sovereignty. So you see how particular it gets. Not only the big things, but the small things. And I think as we uh, read the chapters that uh, we studied for today, uh, we get um, we get that uh, illustrated very clearly. One sixteen five. Not one drop of rain falls without his sure command. See how particular that is. Or think about the snow couple days ago, every little snowflake coming down. How many came down? Well, who knows? <laughs> but everyone was coming down at God's particular command. And 116.5, the flight of birds is governed by God's definite plan. You stand outside at night and watch the birds when they are all over the sky. Nothing looks more chaotic and unplanned than these birds swirling all over the place. But according to Calvin, the flight of the birds is planned by God. 116.7, no wind ever arises or increases except by God's express command. So, 
Nothing is too small, you might say, to be outside of God's providence, outside of God's uh, government. Think. One way to uh, illustrate what I've said so far is to think of the African-American spiritual. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. And the spiritual goes on, you know, to say he's got the tiny little baby in his hands. And uh, that brings us to the next point. It's more than nature. You might say up until this point, uh, Calvin has said God controls um, nature, but uh, he hasn't said anything yet about um, mankind. But uh, it's more than nature. Uh, He also governs mankind. And even, according to Calvin, uh, the plans and intentions of men. 116.8. He governs everything that people do, not only their actions, but also their plans and their intentions. And Calvin says, even the sinful actions and intentions of people. So, spiritual gets it right, doesn't it? Not only does he have the tiny little baby in his hands, but he's got the sinner man in his hands. That spiritual is a wonderful uh, statement of Calvin's view of God's providence. So, Calvin relentlessly and even, you might say enthusiastically, just keeps right on going until he has included uh, everything and excluded nothing from his view of providence or the government of God. Now, he's well aware that this raises uh, some questions in people's minds, but he wants to, um, he wants to first of all, be absolutely sure uh, that um, we know what he's talking about. One of the questions that uh, it raises is, oh, this sounds like fate. This sounds like fate. And the next point is not fate, providence. How does Calvin deal with this objection? It sounds like fate. If everything is fixed, if everything is determined, if God knows and plans and governs everything that happens, is that not fatalistic? Well, Calvin says no. It's interesting how he he deals with this. He says uh, fate is, is a pagan term. It's not a Christian term. It's a pagan term. Providence is a, is a biblical concept. Beside that, fate is impersonal. The Stoic doctrine of fate presupposes that all events were governed by the necessity of nature, which contained within itself an intimately related series of causes and effects. It's impersonal. It's a machine cranking out whatever it's cranking out. There's no person there behind it all. So, quite a difference between fate and Calvin's view of 
providence because providence is personal. It is the Christian doctrine of a holy and loving God and his personal governance of this universe. So if somebody would say to Calvin, but your view is fate, he says, no, it's not fate. It's not a Christian word. It's a pagan term. And beside that, fate means an impersonal ordering, a mindless ordering of what happens. I'm talking about the government of all things by a good, holy, just, and righteous God. So, let's sum it all up. You don't find this precisely stated anywhere in the Institutes like I've quoted it here or stated it here in the outline. But putting all Calvin's thoughts together, we get something like this. God's providence is his watchful, effective, active, ceaseless, total, detailed, personal, loving, wise, and holy governing of this world. Okay, that's the definition. Next, let's come to the application of this definition. And ask the question, as Calvin does, how does God's providence work? We know what it is now, but we want to look at it more closely and see how it works. And uh, Calvin says, 117.1, Sometimes through an intermediary, sometimes without an intermediary, sometimes contrary to every intermediary. So providence can work in different ways. I'll try to illustrate this to um, get at what Calvin is saying. Sometimes God's providence works through an intermediary. I was talking uh, earlier about. Uh, my um, medical situation and I think God's providence has worked in my life to keep me alive to this point through intermediaries. I go to the hospital hundreds of times. I've taken all kinds of medicines. I've had all kinds of uh, radiation surgeries, things like that. So God's uh, purpose is to keep me alive up until this point, and who knows how long it's in God's hands, but um, it's been through intermediaries. God works often that way. Second causes, he'll use that expression too. Sometimes without an intermediary. I think it's entirely possible for God to heal someone who cannot go to the doctors or does not uh, have access to medicine. God can heal directly if he so chooses. And in that case, uh, the work of God is without an intermediary. And sometimes, contrary to every intermediary. It seems to me here we've got, um, we've got something like... Uh, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. You see, the intermediaries or the second causes were operative there. They 
whatever it was that caused Lazarus to die. Um, that was an intermediary that produced the death of this man. And then he is dead. And yet Christ comes and raises him from the dead, contrary to those intermediaries, whatever killed Lazarus and the scientific facts that were operative in his death. Those, those facts would have worked to keep Lazarus dead, but contrary to those facts, Christ works to bring him back to life. It seems to me that this third possibility, sometimes contrary to every intermediary, is what we would call a miracle. Now, I suppose some people would call my point two a miracle. God heals someone without um, medical assistance. And if you want to call that miracle, it's fine with me. But um, point three is definitely a miracle in the full biblical sense of the word that Christ raises a person from the dead. Or Jesus walks on the, on the water. You see, the, the intermediary there is, is gravity. But in this case, God works contrary to the intermediary. So the intermediary doesn't work here in this miracle. Well, I won't get into the question because Calvin doesn't hear whether this kind of thing still happens. You can, uh, you can ask uh, Dr. Williams or Dr. Peterson about that. Actually, Calvin does in the dedicatory letter to Francis I. You might remember if you read that, that uh, letter. One of the objections that Calvin says is raised to the Protestant truth is you don't have any miracles. Catholics have miracles, and you don't have any miracles, so your religion can't be true. And Calvin says, oh, yes, we have miracles. Uh, we have plenty of miracles. Uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, Jesus walked on the water, and he goes through the whole catalog of biblical miracles. So at that point, he seems to uh, restrict his understanding of miracles to what happened uh, in Bible times, not uh, later uh, miracles. But getting back uh, to how God's providence works, sometimes through an intermediary, sometimes without an intermediary, sometimes contrary to an intermediary. But once he has established that, Calvin wants to be sure that we understand that uh, even when God works through an intermediary, it's still God who works. In other words, God works through second causes, and we acknowledge those second causes. But we don't say then, it's not God who has worked. Calvin's illustration here is that light existed before the sun was created. You know, in the Genesis account, light is before the sun. And 
Calvin's point is the son is merely the instrument that God uses because he so wills. Now, the light comes from God, but then God chose to use the sun as the source of the light for our world, and yet it's still coming from God. The light comes from God, but the light comes from the sun. But because we say the light comes from the sun, we're not to say the light does not come from God. So Calvin uh, applies it uh, that way. He applies it to uh, our eating uh, food. He says, um, it's not the bread that nourishes, but God's secret blessing. Now, he doesn't mean that the bread doesn't nourish. We, we eat the food, and we are nourished and fed by the food and strengthened by the food. But Calvin doesn't want to stop there. He wants to say it's God's secret blessing uh, enabling us to uh, eat that food and be nourished uh, by it. So, for Calvin, second causes are real, but um, not uh, independent. They don't exist apart from the personal involvement of God. It is chance, uh, not second causes, that Calvin banishes from the universe uh, with his view of providence. What does God's providence do? Well, it does, it does everything, doesn't it? If it uh, is total, complete, particular, then uh, there's nothing that it doesn't uh, do. But Calvin wants to stress that all of this that God is doing in this world reveals his concern for the whole human race but especially his vigilance in ruling the church, 117.1. It's rather interesting and impressive to think about that, which really means that everything that happens in this world is for the benefit of the human race, or it reflects God's concern for the human race. I mean, I'm going to say in a minute, we can't really see that. We can't always understand that. In fact, we very seldom can understand that. But Calvin says, not only is it done for the whole human race, but especially for the church. It's astounding when you think about it, that everything is working together for good for the church. We can use the text that way. Everything is working together for the good of God's church. Well, he states that. Uh, how much can we understand? Not very much. The order, reason, in, and necessity of those things which happen, for the most part, lie hidden in God's purpose and are not apprehended by human opinion. It's 116.9. 117.1, he does say, God's fatherly favor and beneficence or severity of judgment often shine forth in the whole course of providence. Nevertheless, sometimes 
the causes of events are hidden. I think putting those two together, you get uh, something like this. Uh, Providence is not totally mysterious. As a Christian looks at the world, we're not just totally baffled by God's, God's purpose, his judgment, uh, his blessing shines forth in its, its broader outlines. So in the whole flow of history, we can say, we can see God's judgment at work. We can see God blessing and preserving the church. We can see him uh, judging sin, but just in the big picture, you know, we get down to the particulars and um, what God is doing then is obscure or hidden from us. We can't just look at some event in history and always be sure we know what that means. Always be sure we know what God is doing there. So we must cherish moderation that we do not try to make God render account to us. When we come up against our limited understanding, Calvin says we must be moderate. We must not demand that God tell us what he has not chosen to tell us. And we must reverently adore so once again, we come to worship. So many times we'll, we'll reach this point in the Institutes when our understanding fails. We don't, in frustration, just hammer on the door of heaven and demand that God reveal to us what he is doing. But we fall on our knees uh, in worship. So, how do you look at uh, providence? You look at it as God's doing everything that is done in different ways, using sometimes second causes, sometimes working without them, doing it all for the benefit of humanity and especially for the good of the church. But it's a matter of faith, not understanding. Some understanding, but not total understanding. It's a Puritan, uh, John Flavel. He wrote a book on uh, Providence in which he said that uh, Providence is like a, a Hebrew word. It can only be read backwards. So you can look back and see what God is doing or has done. But I think Flavel may overstate it a bit as the Puritans uh, often tend to Providence is more like uh, some Hebrew words that I look at. It can't be read at all, at least not by me. <laughs> not a good illustration for Dr. Collins or Dr. Bashholtz or some of our Hebrew scholars, but um, I'm puzzled. I don't know what it means. And uh, as we look, even look back at, at history as a historian, often it's, it's impossible to say exactly what was happening there. So, God's providence is often mystery. And even though we can, we can see in the broader outlines the general scope of what God is doing, 
I mean, we know that God is, is judging sin, but he doesn't judge it completely in this life. That teaches us that there is a judgment to come. And God uh, blesses the righteous, but sometimes in this life, the righteous don't appear to be blessed, which teaches us that there is a heaven to come. So even the limitations that we have in understanding God's providence are positive lessons to point us to uh, the future. What is the effect of the doctrine of God's providence in our lives? First, let me say this, that it doesn't lead us into an easy, superficial optimism. It doesn't enable us to uh, say, well, everything's working out. God is in control. And um, kind of a a casual um, view of things. Uh, God's in his heaven. All's right with the world. View. To quote Browning. But all's not right with the world. And, And we know that. We see awful things. And we're disturbed and we are concerned. So as Christians, we don't have a easy, superficial optimism. Uh, not even as, as Calvinists do we have a easy, superficial optimism. We have a, a Christian optimism, but that's quite a different thing from just a kind of a Pollyanna view. Suppose at one time in history, maybe, people could have had a Pollyanna view. It's kind of hard right now to adopt that kind of view, but perhaps some people still do. Secondly, it doesn't uh, relieve us of responsibility or prudence. You can't say, well, since what God is doing is going to be done anyway, then it doesn't matter um, what uh, I do. We're not excused from due prudence since human precaution itself is one of the means that God uses to preserve life. In other words, God tends uh, to preserve our lives. One of the ways that he does that is to use our common sense, our prudence. We go to the doctor when we're sick. We drive carefully when it's uh, icy highway and so on. We don't say, well, God's in control, so I'll just get in my car and speed along the highway at top speed uh, when I know that uh, I could hit some ice and crash my car. We can't can't do that. We have to uh, we have to exercise the the prudence uh, and the precaution that God would have us do. Calvin says in one seventeen four, therefore if the Lord has committed to us the protection of our life, our duty is to protect it. If he offers helps, to use them. If he forewarns us of dangers, not to plunge headlong. If he makes remedies available, not to neglect them. So, be smart, be prudent, be responsible. But, believe in the doctrine of God's providence too. You see, providence is our comfort in life. It's not our guide our comfort it's not our guide our guide is is God's law 
God requires of us only what he commands, Calvin says in 117.5. So you do what you believe God is instructing you to do through his word, and then you take comfort in the fact that God is in control of all things. You see that uh, sheet uh, in the syllabus called Exercise in Providence? Turn over a couple of pages. If we had time, I would, uh, would have you do that uh, right now, but since this is going to be a bit of a short class, I won't. But uh, do this uh, sometime, perhaps today, when you're still thinking about it. That first um, section, things that have worked out well for me, just write down things that have worked out well. And then the second, adversities I'm experiencing. Put down some some of those. All of us have something. And then things I'm worried about. So take a few minutes, uh, not now, but uh, later, and do that. And I'll tell you what, uh, what to do with it. Calvin says that providence leads us to gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things. So, in that first section, when you've written down uh, those things that uh, have worked out well for you, uh, then stop and uh, spend a few minutes in uh, prayer to God and Thanksgiving to God, gratitude to God uh, for those things. We can so easily take things like that for granted and uh, not realize uh, the goodness of God in, in doing so many uh, wonderful things in our lives. So, uh, right gratitude in that first section and actually express your gratitude to God. Gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things. Patience in adversity. Uh, look at your list of adversities after you've written those down. And um, exercise uh, patience. Calvin says that there are three rules for the Christian life. One is patience. Two is patience. Three is patience. <laughs> So, we need to be patient. And three, incredible freedom of worry about the future. Don't have uh, time to read to you 117.10, but uh, you read that uh, section in which uh, Calvin describes all the things that can go wrong. Pretty uh, horrendous uh, listing. You um, walk out of your house and a tile falls off the roof and kills you. So you flee into the garden, or if the tile misses you, you flee into the garden and there a deadly serpent attacks you. you know, all these problems, and think of uh, how many more Calvin could have added if he lived in the 21st century. It's a good thing Calvin was a Calvinist because uh, he had plenty to worry about even back in his time. And uh, his, his picture of the fragility of the human condition is um, impressive. And as I say, we can 
add to all that, too. So there's plenty to worry about. But uh, when you get your uh, list there of things to worry about, uh, just uh, take your uh, pen or better, a big, thick uh, magic marker and put a big X across it all. Incredible freedom of worry about the future. But if you believe in God's providence, what are you worrying about? So those are important points to help us understand the effect of the doctrine of God's providence in our lives. But we need to come now to the problem of providence because having said all this, we still have some big problems or a big problem to deal with. Calvin insists that everything is directed by God, but that raises a real problem because person will say, well, what about sin? What about evil? Is God directing that? Is he planning that? Is he governing that? Uh, the last chapter of book one, before we get to book two, is Calvin's answer. God carries out his will, while at the same time he remains pure from every stain. So, two points that must be held together. One is this. Yes, God directs and governs everything. Calvin says it this way. Nothing is done without God's will, not even that which is against his will. 1.18.3 Nothing is done without God's will, not even that which is against his will. But the other statement that must be held is this. God is not the author of sin, and mankind is responsible. Well, how can it be that if God directs and governs everything, he's not the author of sin? Because sin would be part of everything. Well, Calvin's answer here is uh, an interesting one, and it's basically this. God is not the author of sin because he says he's not the author of sin. Calvin says there's clear scriptural proofs and um, he goes through those uh, proofs. We know that God uses evil without being the author, the singular, of evil. We know that God uses evil without being the author of evil. God knows, Calvin says, right well how to use evil instruments to do good. God can use evil without being the author of evil because God's purpose in using evil is to do good. Well, Luther put it uh, more colorfully. Uh, he said God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. So, God uses evil instruments to do good. We know that. Plenty of references in the Bible that God is doing that. But secondly, we don't know how God uses evil without being uh, the author of evil. 
we don't really understand how God wills to take place what he forbids to be done. Calvin's major illustration here is the death of Christ. God forbids murder. That's what the death of Christ was. God forbids that. It's not his will. It's against his will. But the death of Christ was the will of God. He planned it as part of his purpose. So he wills to take place what he forbids to be done. He's not guilty of sin. He's not the author of sin. The sin rests upon Herod and upon Pilate and upon us. But still God plans the death of Christ while at the same time forbidding murder. God is omnipotent. That means he directs everything. And God is good. That means that he forbids sin. God is omnipotent. He directs everything. He's good. He forbids sin. How do we put those two things together? This is where we come out in the Institutes. Does God then have two wills? Calvin talks about God's preceptive will and his decretive will. His decretive will would be that um, Christ would die on the cross. His perceptive will is that you shall not kill, you shall not murder. So, does that mean that God has two wills? Uh, Calvin says, no, there is a single, simple will. So, behind the two wills, what looks like two wills to us, decretive and preceptive, there is a single will. Even though uh, we can't um, plumb the depths of that will. It is deep, another hidden will, which we cannot fathom. John Murray doesn't particularly like that language and uh, thinks that uh, we should not think of a single will because the language is to him a problem. But um, I don't really see that it's a problem. We understand what Calvin is saying. What looks like two wills is really one will. But uh, what do we have there? Do we have contradiction? Uh, Do we have uh, mystery? Calvin says in 117.5, God's will is so great and boundless. He's so great and boundless in his wisdom that he knows right well how to use evil instruments to do good. It would almost sound like a contradiction. But 118.3, When we do not grasp how God wills to take place, what he forbids to be done, let us recall our mental incapacity and at the same time consider that the light in which God dwells is not without reason called unapproachable. 
So he brings us right up, I would say, to the point of mystery and doesn't really answer the question. He says, when you come up to this point, the two things to remember. One is our mental incapacity. We're not able to to deal with this. And secondly, the fact that God dwells in light, which is unapproachable. So it seems to me that what Calvin is telling us uh, here is we believe God is omnipotent. He directs everything. We believe God is good. He forbids sin. And uh, the way we're able uh, to believe both of those is not because we understand how it can be, but uh, we believe both of those uh, by faith. Now, is that a cop-out or is that a good thing? Some people might think it's a cop-out, but what do you put in its place? Can you really understand how God can be good and omnipotent at the same time? Um, A lot of people have just forsaken one or the other of those points. If God is good, he can't be omnipotent. If God is omnipotent, he can't be good. But if God is both good and omnipotent, and we believe both to be taught in the Bible, then the way we hold together what seems to be a contradiction or at least a mystery uh, is to believe uh, that both are true, even though we can't understand. Okay, that's uh, God's, or Calvin's, I hope it's God's too, doctrine of uh, providence. We come next to um, Sin and Its Results, the first uh, five chapters of um, book two. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Sensing a call from God to serve in ministry? Visit covenantseminary.edu. Check out our degree programs and the many other distinctives that make Covenant Seminary a place committed to equipping you for a lifetime of ministry. That's covenantseminary.edu.